Okay, I know we're Presbyterians and we don't normally do this, but can you give us an amen here? Amen. Amen. That was fabulous. Please take your copies of God's Word. Let's turn together to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7, our text this morning, verses 10 to 17, as we continue to make our way in this series, Christmas in Isaiah. Uh, We've seen the mountain uh, from Isaiah chapter 2. We've seen the branch from Isaiah 4. This morning, we see the sign here in Isaiah 7. But before we turn our attention to God's word, let's pray together. Almighty God, we do come to you as your people, having sung your praise. Uh, We ask now that you would grant us your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would come and open our eyes of faith this day, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 7, beginning in verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men, that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, he shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in C.S. Lewis's book, uh, The Silver Chair, you've read it, you know the two main characters uh, are Jill Pohl and Eustace Scrub, but the book opens with Jill Pohl being drawn into the world between the worlds, and she is given an assignment in Narnia. Uh, Aslan tells her that she and Eustace are going to have to find the lost prince. But in order to find him, Aslan gives Jill four particular signs. And these four particular signs, Aslan has Jill repeat over and over and over until she has them down by heart. And then, right before he blows her into Narnia, Aslan gives Jill this last word of exhortation. He says, remember, remember, remember the signs. Say them to yourself when you wake in the morning and when you lay down at night and when you wake in the middle of the night. And whatever strange things may happen to you, let nothing turn your mind from following the signs. And secondly, I give you a warning. Here on the mountain I have spoken to you clearly, I will not so often down in Narnia. Here on the mountain the air is clear and your mind is clear. As you drop down into Narnia, the air will thicken. Take great care that it does not confuse your mind. And the signs which you've learned here will not look at all as you expect them to look when you meet them there. 
That's why it's so important to know them by heart and pay no attention to appearances. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. Nothing else matters. Remember the signs. Believe the signs. That's not just a good word in in C.S. Lewis's story. It's how we get through life, isn't it? We're always looking for signs. We look for signs in the body language of the person we're talking with, perhaps making small talk at some venue. We're watching how they respond to us. Perhaps they're watching if, if we're uh, keeping our eyes contacted on their eyes. Are, they, are we really interested in what they're saying, which affects their body language to us? We're looking for signs in the conversation. Or we're looking for signs in the email or the text message. We parse those words, trying to discern the the meaning and what's been texted to us or emailed to us. Or or we try to discern uh, what's happening in the chance meeting of the individual, perhaps at a a party or at a restaurant or at a business meeting. And, And we've never seen this person before and we meet them. What does it mean that they've crossed my life at this point as I've been thinking about certain things We look for signs, and we look for signs because we're trying to discern what to do next. Um, Sometimes that even shows up in popular culture. In in the song, The Sign, which was the only hit for the 1990s band that some of you might remember, Ace of Bass. This is probably the first time in about 20 years you've thought about Ace of Bass. There's a reason why they're a one-hit wonder. Uh, But in that song that was number one and played on the radio incessantly, um, the singer wonders why she's still romantically involved with this loser guy. And so she looks to the stars and she looks to the moon and she looks to her own life and she questions whether enough is enough. And it all resolves when I saw the sign and it opened up my mind and I'm happy now living without you because I've left you. Well, there you go. She got the sign, and it, it gave direction to her life. But, but whether we have clear guidance as we look for signs, or whether we're trying to find that guidance by looking for signs, we tend to remember the signs, don't we? We tend to believe the signs. And God knows that about us. And that's why in his kindness, he gives us signs. He gives us his word. It's the ultimate sign. It's the ultimate promise that points us to the true king, to the God who's come near to us in Jesus Christ. He gives us sacraments. At the 830 service, we had the sacrament of baptism. Um, On Christmas Eve, we'll have the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. They serve as signs and seals of God's promises that we call the covenant of grace. They point us to God, the king. That's what signs do. And in the Old Testament... God gave signs that were meant to point again and again to the true king, to the true prince who was coming into the world. And he gave not just Old Testament sacraments like circumcision and Passover, but he also gave prophecies, these these signs that, that God gave that were meant to point to the true king. They were they were meant to show that that God himself is trustworthy. That God himself is true, that that as God's people make their way through this world, they can trust, they can believe, they can rest their hearts in God. Of course, there's a risk there, isn't there? It's risky to trust God in this world, isn't it? 
I mean, when we come into situations in our lives or, or things that are difficult to enter in, we, it's hard to trust a God we can't see. It's risky to do so. We much rather trust our own wits, our own evaluation of the situation, our own networking, our own wealth or power or access. But friends, God's calling you and me this morning to trust him. And he's using his word and the sign that's described in this word to call you to risk yourself upon him. If you will, to push in all your chips, to to double down, if you will, to trust him, to trust his word, to trust his signs. That's what God's calling King Ahaz to do this morning in the passage that we've just read from the Bible. Calling King Ahaz to push everything in and trusting God. But as we find in our passages, even the portion that we've read, we discover that, that King Ahaz was, was double-minded. Now, if you've ever read Isaiah before, you, you know that most of Isaiah, the 66 books that make up Isaiah's book, uh, the, excuse me, the 66 chapters that make up Isaiah's book are, are really largely prophecies. Prophecies both of foretelling, of telling God's people areas of sin and calling them to repent, And prophecies of foretelling, predicting the future, and particularly predicting the future as it concerns the coming Messiah in the line of David. The vast preponderance of Isaiah are just that kind of thing. But there are some places in Isaiah's book where you come into some historical narrative, where Isaiah will confront or deal with the various kings of Judah. And Isaiah 7 is one of those places If we had taken the time to read from verse 1 of the chapter, you would have seen there that there's a a historical marker. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of uh, Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. And so the, the listing of those kings serves as a kind of dating function. Scholars tell us that this probably occurs somewhere around 735 BC. And what's happening is this. Judah is being threatened by an alliance that's been forged between Israel, the northern ten tribes, and Syria. And this alliance is meant to destroy uh, the line of David in Judah. Ahaz is so frightened of it that what you find in verse 2 is when the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, that is Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There's, there's deep anxiety because of this alliance that these two northern kingdoms have forged. And so God sends Isaiah to King Ahaz. And Isaiah takes his son, this fascinatingly named child named Seir Jashub, None of you probably have named your kids that. Sheer Jashub. Um, Often names in the Bible mean stuff. Uh, This child's name means something. It literally stands in for a remnant shall return. It's a word of judgment, potentially, to Ahaz, but also a word of promise. And so Isaiah shows up with his child, a remnant shall return. And, And Isaiah urges Ahaz to trust the Lord, to trust that the Lord will deliver him. That, that these two kingdoms that threaten him, God will deal with them. That you can trust him. You can risk yourself in trusting God, Yahweh, Judah's God. You can trust him, Ahaz. 
But then there's this warning in verse 9. If you're not firm in the faith, you will not be firm at all. And it was just at this moment that God, in his kindness, offers Ahaz a sign. Offers Ahaz something that might assure him, strengthen him. And that's where our passage that we read together picked up. Look at verse 10 again. Uh, again, verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Now, this is, this is a remarkable kindness from God. He's already given Ahaz all that he needs to know. If you just trust in me, I will deliver you from this alliance between Israel and Syria. But because of my care for you, because of my kindness towards you, I'm going to give you a sign to confirm my word to you. Ask whatever you will. I'm willing to move heaven and earth, right? The depths of Sheol, the grave, as high as heaven. I'm willing to move heaven and earth to persuade you, Ahaz. God would stop at nothing to encourage Ahaz with a sign that he could pick. Now, if, if, if God were to come to you and say, you can ask for any sign to assure your heart that my promises are true, how would you respond? If he came to you and said, Bob, Sally, Gail, Fred, you can ask anything you want that, that will serve to assure your heart. I think the vast preponderance of us would say, really, Lord? You'd do that for me? You'd move heaven and earth to assure my heart in this way? I mean, we would be overwhelmed with gratitude, wouldn't we? Well, that's not how Ahaz responds at all. In fact, he responds with profound unbelief. Look at verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, on the surface, those words sound so pious. They sound so spiritual, so religious. Ahaz falls back to the Bible. He falls back to the Torah, to, to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And he takes God's word from the Torah in order to refuse to, to obey God's word through Isaiah. And he does it in such a pious way. It has the appearance of godliness, but friends, it has no substance. Really, what's going on here with Ahaz is profound unbelief. It's a, it's a kind of double-mindedness to, to refuse to obey God's word by trying to find another place in the Bible that might provide it out just so that I don't have to do what God's calling me to do. I don't have to submit to God's word. I don't have to trust him in this moment. And oh, because this part of the Bible tells me so. This is, this is the unbelief that Ahaz represents, a kind of double-mindedness. But friends, we can do the same thing. We, we can be double-minded and so remain in the same position of unbelief as Ahaz. I mean, to be sure, we can, be look, we can look pious. We have all the God talk. Oh, God, God is working in this way, and, and I know God will be with me, and all things work together after all for those who love God. We can have all the God talk, and we can show up to Bible studies or to church meetings or to counseling meetings, and we bring our largest Bible that we can find to show that we are really spiritual 
really pious. But in the end, we're double-minded men, unstable in all our ways, just as James said in James chapter 1, which is just another way of saying we're deceiving ourselves. We're fooling ourselves. We're lying to ourselves. But notice, we're not fooling God. And neither was Ahaz. You see, since Ahaz refused God's offer to move heaven and earth in order to persuade him to trust in him, God, out of his weariness and exasperation, says, no, I'm going to give you a sign, Ahaz. And this sign is going to have a double meaning. That's how signs and prophecies often work in the Old Testament. Signs and prophecies often have an immediate reference to the individual or group to whom the prophecy is given, but then there's this ultimate fulfillment, either in the Gospels or even at the end of the age as described in Revelation. And so it is here. We have a prophecy with a double meaning. Look at verse 13. Isaiah says, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people, upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah namely the king of Assyria. Now, without getting into too much of the details just this second, if you just step back and take in the prophecy as a whole, it's actually relatively straightforward. Before a soon-to-be-conceived child is old enough to exercise judgment, God tells Ahaz, those two kingdoms you're worried about, Assyria and, uh, uh, Israel and Syria, guess what? They're going to be deserted. Those kings you worry about, they're going to be gone. So far, so good, right? Ahaz has to think, well, that's a pretty good sign. That that the two kingdoms I'm most worried about, uh, Israel, the northern ten tribes, Syria, they would be taken away. That's pretty good, but then there's a sting in the sign. Because the Assyrians are coming. And the Assyrians are coming to lay siege to Judah. And from that point on, if you read the rest of chapter 7 into chapter 8, from that point on, Judah will never be an independent state. They will be vassals. They'll be slaves to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, to the Medes and the Persians, to the Greeks and the Romans, until they're finally destroyed. The moment of decision had come for Ahaz. Would he trust God or would he not? And with his pious words and his unbelieving heart, he failed the test. And for him, this sign is a sign of judgment. Of course, there's some questions that come up about the sign itself, like, who is this virgin that Isaiah prophesies concerning? And should this word even be translated virgin? If you're familiar at all with what liberal Old Testament scholarship has said for over a hundred years, there are those who try to say that this word in verse 14 should not be translated virgin, but but actually, yes, it should. Uh, All of the uses of this particular word throughout the Old Testament refer to a young woman of marriageable age who has not been married before, and so a virgin. 
And in fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint translates the word here for young woman with the same Greek word that will show up in the New Testament in reference to Mary in Luke chapter 1, the word we know as virgin. Well, so who is this young woman? Well, I tend to think if you were to read on into chapter 8, that this prophetess who shows up with whom Isaiah has a child is the most likely referent to the sign. And, and in fact, the, the child himself, uh, wonderfully named Maher Shalal Hashbaz, um, another, another wonderful name for your children or grandchildren. Um, but this child is going to be used throughout chapter 8 in connection with the prophecy concerning Assyria. So I tend to think that the immediate referent is sitting there in the very next chapter. But why is this child to be born called Emmanuel? Well, because this child, but even more the rest of the prophecy, is a demonstration that God is with his people, right? Emmanuel means God with us. So, so this child in the prophecy means that God is in fact Emmanuel. He is with his people, but he's with his people for judgment. But, but even when God comes to his people in keeping his promises for judgment, that's actually a word of hope. Why is that the case? Why is it that God keeping his promise to Old Testament Israel, that the Assyrians would come, and in fact, they did come and bring God's judgment against Judah. Why is that actually a word of hope? Well, it means because God's going to keep his promises. And throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, God's ultimate promise is not a promise of judgment. No, God's ultimate promise and his ultimate word is one of salvation. God's ultimate promise and ultimate word is a word of grace. Which means then there's another fulfillment and there's another meaning to this sign. One that will come about 700 years later to another son of David, a man named Joseph. Joseph was a tradesman. He was a carpenter and a master mason who lived in Nazareth. And he was engaged to be married to a godly young woman named Mary. And he was working, working really hard to set up proper housekeeping so that he might close the marriage contract and take Mary as his wife. But stunningly and tragically, Joseph discovers that Mary is pregnant. And he knew he wasn't the father. He didn't really know who was. But he didn't know what to do. He, he could have brought her to the synagogue and, and shown everyone the fact that she was pregnant and he was not the father. And shame her. But he doesn't want to do that. He's a good man a just man. And so he's tossing and turning, trying to figure out, should I divorce her? What should I do? And during one of those fitful nights of sleep, as he's wrestling over the entire problem, he has a dream. Matthew chapter 1 describes it this way. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. 
When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What did the angel say? He said that Mary was still a virgin. She had known no man sexually. This conception was miraculous. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. She would bear his son. His name would be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. But this child, this Jesus, he would be the ultimate fulfillment of Emmanuel. Because Jesus was the sign that God was with his people for hope. Friends, why should we hope? Should we hope simply because, as Parker said earlier, tis the season? Tis the season that somehow we persuade ourselves with all the music and songs and gifts and presents and family around that, oh, well, then we need to hope in one another or the goodness in humankind. Why should we hope? Friends, we should hope because God doesn't abandon us to our double-mindedness. He doesn't leave us in our empty piety. He doesn't let us rest with our sometimes religiosity. Rather, he comes to us And he moves into our neighborhood and he takes our own flesh on himself so that he might save us from our sins. Judgment comes. It must certainly surely come. But it came and it came upon Jesus, the Emmanuel. It came upon God with us on the cross. The wrath and curse of God was poured out upon him greater than anything the Assyrians could mete out. It was all poured out upon Jesus, so that, so that you might be rescued, you might be saved. He comes to save his people from their sins. God in Jesus Christ came to save you from you, but even more, God came to save you from God, from his just judgment. You might be here this morning, and you're trying to discern what's going on in your life. You're looking for a sign What should I be doing? Where should I be going? How do I make it through this life? Friend, if that's you this morning, there is a sign, and it's the virgin-born child named Jesus. He's your sign. He was the one who was born and lived and suffered and bled and died for sinners like you and me. He was raised so that we might be right with God, and he's calling you this morning. Through my voice, Jesus is calling you, and he's calling you to double down. To risk yourself in faith, to rest upon him and receive Jesus as he's offered to you in the gospel. So push it in. All those chips that you think are yours, all that you have, all that you are, double down. Push it in. Risk yourself. This past week we had Sandra McCracken and Taylor Leonhardt uh, here at IPC for a Christmas concert. When I introduced them, I mentioned that Taylor is part of a, a worship group called Mission House. And one of Mission House's songs gets right to this very point, namely that, that faith involves risking ourselves. It involves giving all that we have and all that we are over to Jesus. They sing, there's so much I don't see, but I see you. And there's so much I don't know, but I, I know you. And there's so much I don't understand, but I've seen your goodness, and it's just enough that I'll bet all I have on you, because only a fool would find real love and just give it up. I bet all I have on you. Some of you have been hedging your bets. Some of you have been hedging your bets, and you've been double-minded. 
You've, you've tried to put your foot, one foot firmly on the highway to heaven, the way of the redeemed, and you've kept your other foot right in the world, trying somehow by your wits and your intuition and your networking and your money and your power to somehow navigate this life. But this morning, you have a sign. And the virgin child of Jesus is calling out to you, if you're not firm in the faith, you'll not be firm at all. So friend, double down. Rest your heart in Jesus. Commit yourself to him. Follow him as the only one. As the one who is in fact God with us. Friend, remember the signs. Believe the signs because nothing else matters. And those signs, they point to Jesus. He's calling to you. And he's enough. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me please? Father, I do pray for my friends this morning, pray for myself, Lord, that we, would, that we would double down, that we would rest our hearts in you, we would risk ourselves in that way. Lord, you tell us in your word, blessed is the one who has not seen and yet believes, believes the word, believes the signs. And so, Lord, please grant us grace to believe in you this morning, that all that we've heard this morning has been pointing us to yourself and so, Lord, we open our hearts to you. We've made room for you. Come to our hearts, Lord Jesus. There's room in our hearts for you. Lord, come, we ask. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's respond by taking our hymnals.